Christmas came in with its usual rush for us, but never with such a frightening hurrying on of time as for the workers in Telefish Aaron. When those bells ring out again tonight, Telefish Aaron will be in being. The date, New Year's Eve, 1961. The opening of Telefish Aaron, Balakashout. As Kathleen Watkins became Ireland's first television girl announcer, the Director-General, Ed Roth, Jr., an American import, outlined his plans to an eager nation. Here's Mila Foyter, a special programme for opening night, which I'm sure you're going to enjoy. I've been living and working here in Ireland for hardly more than a year. And what the men and women in Telefish Erin have accomplished during this past year has been remarkable. Their energy and their dedication are a guarantee that this New Year's Eve is not only a festive end to a prolonged effort, but also a happy beginning. Every one of us at Telefish Erin is conscious of what this beginning signifies in the long history of this nation. We have worked together so that through television we may do for you, the Irish people, what television is specially equipped to do. That is, to give this historic nation a deeper and sharper awareness of itself and of the world in which it exists. And to bring into your own homes the fabulous wealth of entertainment and fun, the news and commentaries, and the information and culture that can enrich your lives. A hundred thousand welcomes to a hundred thousand Irish television homes. People yakety-yak a streak and waste your time a day. But Mr. Ed will never speak unless he has something to say. A horse is a horse, of course, of course. And this one will talk to his voice, his horse. You never heard of a talking horse? Well, listen to this. I am Mr. Ed. I am privileged in being the first to address you on our new service, Television I hope the service will provide for you all sources of recreation and pleasure, but also information, instruction, and knowledge. I must admit that sometimes when I think of television and radio and their immense power, I feel somewhat afraid. Like atomic energy, it can be used for incalculable good, but it can also do irreparable harm. Well, if the nation was agog at Mr. Ed Roth's tantalising blend of art, culture and entertainment, President Eamon de Valera, in his opening speech, was laying down a few ground rules. Nothing official, mind you, just uh, a few suggestions. I feel sure that full use will be made of the immense repertory which is now at our disposal. Apart altogether from the wonders of nature... We have the great achievements of man himself. The masterpieces of architecture, engineering, sculpture, painting. And who, in looking at these or hearing 
the great musical compositions of the great composers will want to descend to anything lower. the birth of the station. How did the whole thing start? Well, Ireland's first brush with television occurred in January 1927, exactly one year after 2RN, the radio service, opened. In that year, a certain Scottish inventor was in Dublin's Theatre Royal, lecturing on his new gadget. He approached 2RN and offered to give a free talk on his uh, pride and joy. The radio controller of the time, Seamus Clandillon, could see no future for this Scottish man's invention, but did offer him a short time, but only after the regular closing time for his talk. Well, the inventor promptly told Clandillon to get knotted there and then and took his invention to London. The inventor's name was John Logie Baird, and he called his idea television. What exactly was it? Well, nine years later, the British Postmaster General explained. What will be the nature of television programmes? It is difficult to say. Broadcast television, as it is likely to emerge at first, can perhaps best be described if I ask you to imagine that in the centre of your present wireless set there was a little square of glass on which you could now see me as I sit here in the studio at Broadcasting House. This is the BBC television station at Alexandra Palace. At three o'clock this afternoon, the television service was opened by the Postmaster General using the Baird system. The opening programme will now be repeated on the Marconi EMI system. The speeches are followed by the latest edition of the British Movie Tone News, then Adele Dixon and Buck and Bubbles, both accompanied by the television orchestra. The world's first TV broadcast in 1936, and it was a repeat. John Logie Baird's fellow Scotsman, John Reith, the austere director-general of the BBC, being a radio man at heart, perhaps, was, well, less than enthusiastic about television. As to programmes, don't expect too much... The programmes will neither be very interesting nor very good. BBC television went off the air until after the war, but returned in the late 1940s. Meanwhile in Ireland, interest in television was mainly propagated by the companies who manufactured TV sets and broadcasting equipment. And in 1953, they ran a television exhibition in Dublin. Ronnie Walsh was there. <laughs> I'd leave it alone for a while. <laughs> uh, anything you'd like to ask him? Well, there is one question. I, I don't think it's really technical to this. Um, how, is the technique of acting on television very different from the stage? That's what we're aiming to find out, and that's why we hope to establish a school in television to learn all these things. I, being a, an engineer, of course, know very little about the acting, but I do know that it's very necessary to learn all about it, and we intend to get experts into the school to train other ex uh, instructors to pass the word on and the instruction. 
Yes, you see. Thank you. Well, if I might just ask one question of Mr. Short, who is uh, the other technician, the camera technician. Mr. Short, uh, have you found here today that you're very restricted for any particular reasons? Do you think that any reason why, from a technical point of view, television shouldn't be possible in Ireland? There's no reason at all, not technically. Not technically. The only trouble I'm uh, suffering is at the moment is low main supply, which is affecting my equipment very badly. You mean that the supply of electricity is not uh, not, strong not constant, you see. It's not very constant. low at the moment due to peak load in the time. Well, supposing there were television <coughs> in operation here, how could that be overcome? Uh, well, we suffered j just the same in Britain by this. In the afternoon, uh, very few sets will give the performances what they should, are capable of doing, you see. It's, uh, it's a thing you can't get around. It's we, you, your consumption is greater than your generating capacity, and of course you, it's a thing you've got to tolerate. That recording made at the TV exhibition in the Mansion House in 1953. The Department of Posts and Telegraphs, having responsibility for broadcasting in Ireland, moved with all haste and appointed a committee. In the fullness of time, it identified a site for the transmitter on Kipur, and by 1959, the small committee had blossomed into a full-blown 20-member commission. The Minister for Posts and Telegraphs, Mr Hilliard, who has been having many discussions lately on the subject of TV himself appeared on the television screen this afternoon when he opened the radio, television and electronic exhibition at the Mansion House. In the course of his speech, the Minister said that he hoped soon to introduce the necessary legislation for setting up the Irish television service, which would not be long in coming. The advisory committee has had a number of meetings already, and I would like to assure the radio manufacturers, as well as the public, that the plans for beginning the television service are proceeding with all possible expedition. That is not to say, of course, that the service can be established overnight. The manufacture of one transmitter after another has been placed as a job that will take quite a long time, indeed. Until quite recently, the uh, delivery terms were much less favourable than they are at present. A building has to be provided at the top of Kippur to house the transmitter and probably a more complex task of providing for temporary studios in Dublin will have to be undertaken. Apart from erecting the buildings and installing the equipment, the Television Authority has still to face the task of getting and training technical and artistic staff to maintain and operate the equipment and provide the programme. Arrangements will also have to be made to obtain films and tele-recording to supplement the productions of Irish origin. Negotiations and consultations will have to be held with advertising interests. The starting of a television service is in fact a complex and costly job in all its aspects. As I said, however, the matter has been pushed forward with all possible speed, and the fact that the service will be a semi-state one does not mean that its establishment should be delayed any longer than if it was a privately controlled and operated service. There has been correspondence in the past and a good deal of discussion about the line standard to be used by Irish television. No formal decision has been taken on that matter, and I should say on this occasion to the radio industry and the public that certainly any decision to adopt a standard other than the one in use on sets already in the hands of the public would involve serious technical and other practical difficulties. In any event, no matter what decision may be taken, 
owners of television sets of the existing type need have no fear of these being unsuitable to receive Irish programmes. The Minister for Posts and Telegraphs, Michael Hilliard. The Broadcasting Act of 1960 loosened the control of the Minister for Posts and Telegraphs on broadcasting and set up the Broadcasting Authority to oversee the development of Irish television. As its first chairman, the Minister appointed Ireland's best-known television personality, Eamon Andrews. I was at uh, the interview at which uh, Mr Lamas had with Eamon Andrews and it was obvious to me that... uh, uh, Mr. Lamas thought very highly of Eamon Andrews. He regarded him as a person of excellent character and uh, a person with wide experience in the matter of broadcasting and uh, in in uh, entertainment on radio and television. And uh, he uh, felt that he, he was appointing a man who was a real good Irishman. I was very surprised. Um, I mean, I had, for some years before, I tried to lobby... Uh, the government or Post and Telegraphs, which I think is an unlobbyable uh, <laughs> body, or was in those days anyway, uh, to start television. And, I, and nobody, I don't know, that just, we never really got any serious answers back. So I suppose that maybe to that extent, when they were going through the files of the cranks who were talking about television, I was one of them. And uh, Michael Hilliard uh, sent for me, and I was surprised. Oh, he asked me to, to, to come and see him and said, uh, would I consider this... Uh, chairmanship and uh, I was flattered and interested but I wondered was it possible and I said I would think about it Uh, um, I'm sure this is not relevant but I I did say to him you know as long as you're not asking me what my politics are I will take it as a broadcasting job he said I don't want to know what your politics are which was refreshing to me with all the talk that goes on in our town about uh, this kind of thing then I went to see uh, the Taoiseach who was Sean Lamass and uh, he was, as we all know, a very impressive character. And uh, I said, yes, I would do it. And he said, right, well, uh, we'll pay you, I think it was 500 a year or 1,000, I don't know which. And I said, no, I'm just doing it for for Ireland sort of thing. I don't want any money. He said, no, no, I want to pay. He said, because I want to be able to fire you. <laughs> um, some of the pressures were unexpected. Uh, they came from most extraordinary sources. And I wasn't... Uh, I wasn't a committee man. I wasn't used to understanding where people came from, and indeed, eventually, political pressures, not necessarily coming from the top or the bottom or in between, but they were there. And, you know, language pressures and religious pressures all boiled up at this uh, table, and we had a very excellent authority. But, like, at that stage, I was the only one who knew anything about broadcasting, and my main concern was to try and get a service on that would be looked at first of all, before we decided what else it wanted to do. Uh, I had many a, a battle with uh, Sean Lamass over this. He believed it should be an extension of government, an arm of government. I believed very passionately the, the opposite, that a broadcasting authority should be removed as far as possible from a government. Obviously, you have to have some qualifications in a single uh, channel country of our size where you couldn't go berserk and so there'd have to be some ultimate uh, deterrent but I always thought that A, the government, B, politicians were far too sensitive, paid far too much attention to television A, it got them a lot of publicity anyway and tended to interfere too much if they could Um, 
I don't know where the division should be, but it should be much further away than it was then. I think it has moved further away, which is all to the good. Under Eamon Andrews' chairmanship, the authority moved quickly. It set up temporary offices in Clarendon Street, Dublin, and work commenced at the studio site of Montrose House. Radio people felt very much at home there. It was the home of the Jemison distilling family, and for a while, of Marconi himself. But in the meantime, temporary studios were needed to start the service, so Sharon leased the Marion Hall in Ballsbridge, Dublin. Norris Davidson covered the early days for radio, as in July 1961, the first intake of recruits was being trained in the mysteries of television. Here, the people who have been selected for training have gathered. Most of them are raw, and they're unclassified. They're gathered in groups for lectures in very general introductory terms. This one is being given by Pat Carney, director of program production. There are several ways of doing this <coughs> business of directing actors on the floor. The way I like, which is the way I'll tell you about, is you can find you can feel different to it. You can feel free to disagree with it if you want to, but I think that this is possibly one of the best ways of doing it. You take the actors for the first scene. You go down on the studio floor. You have your production assistant and your floor manager with you, and you have your three cameramen with you, and you have your microphone. And you all, everybody stands around the director and the back of him. And the actors do their scene. And as they do it, and as they read their lines, the director is saying, and you will track in on that shot to his face, and then I will cut to Bill, who's the young camera too. And then I want him to track in on the close-up of the girl's face. And then he stops the actors and he says to the cameraman, now, have you got that? Fine. It's better in a long and a complicated drama to do this scene by scene, very small scenes at a time. The furniture of the school, the equipment of its control room, the lights. Everything is being unpacked and assembled, and everyone lends a hand with one kind of job or another. One trainee is sweeping the floor, something far from the job he hopes to get, I'm sure. His name is Kieran Kilroy and we're going to find out how he comes to be here. I was a university student at UCD, mm -hmm. and uh, I saw an advertisement in the paper, and I answered it, and I got a form, and I filled it in. What were you doing at university? I was doing arts, uh, honours, English and history, and Latin and philosophy. Now, what do you hope to do when this class settles down, when you've learned a bit? Well, there are a series of jobs uh, which, we can, which we have applied for, and we will be assigned to those at the end of the course. They aren't uh, fully determined yet, you know, but I hope to be a floor manager. The stage was curtained off, and the control room equipment was set up behind it. The floor of the hall became a studio. Quite soon, a dry run of a sports cast was being set up by Ernest Byrne, who was director of the training course. A team was assigned to it. The telecine projected a Croke Park final. An announcer was brought in from Sound Radio and a sports commentator. Each section was linked up by headphones and the producer took over. Stand by in the studio, please. One minute. One minute. Camera two, will you frame up on the opening card? Preview camera two, please. 
A little too close on two. Pull back, please. Hold it right there. That's good. Preview one. Camera one, will you drag to a tight shot on Dennis, please? It's at five lens. 30 seconds. Let Dennis take a seat, please. Follow him down. That's good. Stand by with the opening music. Camera one, can you hear me? Yeah. Camera two, Telecine, and floor. Five seconds, here we go. Ready to take one. Spin the music and take one. Music under, open the news mic and cue up. Stand by to dissolve to two. Dissolve to two, fade your music slowly out, please. The first news story today Stand by, Telecine. Roll, Telecine. Roll, Telecine. Okay, stop it right there. By September of that year, 1961, Italian engineers were helping with building the links and Norwegian riggers were busy building the mast. The contract for the transmitter itself had gone to Pi Limited and in a celebration luncheon, Mr C. O. Stanley of Pi handed over the transmitter to the authority. And nothing gives me greater pleasure than that it is a company that I am associated with should have built this transmitter. I hope it will be a good transmitter. And I can assure you the transmitters go on the air by hope and intent, never by practical experience. <laughs> when you press that switch this afternoon, Mr. Minister, it is even money, whether it works or not. <laughs> and that's the same whether you're in New York or Moscow. You didn't have any doubt about it. I've had this all my life. All I can tell you up to now, it's worked. <laughs> but perhaps that luck might be the unlucky chance this afternoon. But now, here you are. I, I, I have been through the experiences of uh, the television commission, not commission, what did they call it? Commission. That you had with this body of 30 people. Commission. I appeared before them three times. It was the most grueling thing I've ever had in my life. I've never been so belittled. I, I unfortunately didn't lose my temper. <laughs> and then you decided in the only sensible thing, not to give it to a commercial contractor. I can only tell you now quite frankly that I went to bed at night feeling what would happen if I ever got this concession. <laughs> I prayed to God that they would give it to anybody else in Ireland but not to me. But of course if they gave it to a foreigner then I'd fight like hell. <laughs> Television, as we all know, may not be a piece of cake, but we're all delighted that at any rate, a piece of it is pie. <laughs> now, pie's work at Capure is finished. Much of ours is still to be completed and lies ahead of us. The signal and the symbol that will be transmitted tonight when our minister presses that button from Capure will not, we know, set the mountain on fire, but will be a promise, we hope, of the exciting things to come. 
That evening, the 5th of September 1961, the Kipur transmitter was finally switched on and in the following days, enthusiastic Dubliners tuned to Channel 7 and looked on approvingly, for the most part, at the test cards of the St. Bridges Cross and views of Glendalough. Well, I've come down here, here on several occasions to see the test transmission and I must say it's very nice to see something tangible, tangible being done after all the talk. And uh, what about the future? you made up your mind. Oh, I have indeed. I, I'll certainly be looking forward to Irish television very much. Well, I think it's marvellous here now, um, being able to see it immediately. I mean, I think it's a, uh, it says a lot for the firm that gets there first off, you know, and what I mean about seven television sh- sets showing you the picture. Um, well, it's quite something, I feel. And it should help the sales immensely. It certainly is drawing the crowds anyway. Yes, it appears to be doing that all right, and it uh, gives me an idea of what the reception is like. Even with them, these sets would appear that they're not even on the, the aerial that would be suitable for television reception, and yet there's quite a picture there, as you can see, compared to the normal reception of BBC and UTV. Meanwhile, high on Kipur, the Telefisheron engineers explained, as only engineers can, in a language the strangers do not know. The signal will come on a microwave beam. The system is uh, broadly this. As everyone knows, the signals originate in the studios. They originate as separate vision and sound signals. They are then sent on cables to a link house, which is situated in the grounds of the Montrose Studios. There, they are superimposed upon this microwave beam that I referred to. This is a very high frequency. You may have noticed that little has been said about programming. Well, the programme people were busily engaged doing training and pilot programmes, and exciting stuff it was too. Handicrafts for Women was one, being directed by Christopher Fitzsimons. Who's on camera one? Here, right here. Fine, we want you to crane up as far as possible and take each of those objects in turn as we come to them. Now, Mrs Foley will start demonstrating at the far end, and you'll take each object one by one. the left end. That's right. Each object, one by one, right down to the right end of the table as she comes to them. Thank you. Fine. Terrific. All right, let's cut the chatter, please. All right. Cue Mrs. Foley and fade up to... Now, this hairpin watch is made on a hairpin... And there was a resident choreographer, Norman Main. I'm here to have a look at your dancers and your group. The idea is, with my position with radio, air and television that I should like a group of dancers who would perform on a variety show as such every week. Uh, This is primarily I'm looking at individual dancers. I also wanted to see your group in the event that we would have uh, large spectacular programs where we demand, you know, a company of dancers that would come in and do some of their repertoire and so on. For the individual dancer, I should like a general all-round type dancer who can do what we call commercial dancing. Yes. I'm sure you, you know yes, what I mean. Yes. Where one week perhaps it'd be designed to do a Charleston if it was a 20 show, or the next week a romantic uh, ballroom number, or a modern jazz number. That type of thing yes. is what we're looking for in individual dancing. Exciting stuff. But who was going to pay for all this? The head of commercial advertising for the station was Niall Sheridan. It's quite obvious that uh, we should have to have advertising revenue in order to make the service viable, um, we couldn't 
operate a television service in this country on license revenue alone, so the government, wisely, I think, decided that it needed two sources of revenue, license and advertising. Uh, but the uh, suggestion that um, there will be a preponderance of advertising is uh, just nonsense. And the head of drama was Hilton Edwards. I understand that the present requirements from this department will be one full-length play a week, that is to say either uh, an hour play or under certain circumstances if the play really uh, needs the space an hour and a half, and one half an hour play a week. Now this half an hour play will either be a, a play complete in itself or uh, a play again complete in itself but a portion of a series, or it might indeed be a, a portion of a serial. You know, uh, next week see how she gets out of the well. Well, this being a country where sport dominates almost all other news, uh, I hope to have a fairly wide coverage of sport. In fact, each Thursday we should put on a feature program, a magazine program with film and discussion groups and things like that. Each Sunday evening we'll have a wrap-up program of the weekend of sport in which we hope to have reports of the big matches of the various types of games all over the country together with film and stills. And then at five past eleven each night we have a five-minute sports wrap-up of gossip and possibly results. In addition to that we'll have, of course, the usual sports items in the news bulletin through the evening. Yes, that sounds like a busy, a busy time for you. Well, it certainly has been up to now. We've been planning and laying the foundation for all these things and keeping the fingers crossed that it'll all work yes. out the way the foundation is laid. Michael O'Hare had a sport. Dancing, choreography, drama, commercials. It seemed most people, though, wanted to know what sort of films were being shown. Well, we shall, of course, be showing a great many films because in order to fill six hours of programming, it is quite impossible for any station, and most certainly for us, starting with the facilities and resources we have available, to occupy all that program time. We are doing our utmost to uh, push ahead to the very limit the amount of home-produced material that we can provide, but it still leaves big areas. Now, to fill this, we are buying film or recorded programs from other people, largely film, because this is the most easily obtained. Uh, in the world television market, trying to spread it as widely as possible so that the whole doesn't come from one particular quarter. And when you say old, as I have already made clear, I think it's absolute nonsense to relate age necessarily with the quality of any individual program, because some of the first were made by very real clever people. Yeah, real master that yes. this after great study. And if, in fact, they haven't been seen here for my money, this is something I think we ought to show. It's a question of choice of quality rather than age. Yes, of course. Too unrelated. Uh, can you tell me any of the, the titles of any of the films you'll be seeing fairly um, Yes, I think that's possible. Now, uh, two, of course, are known. I keep on mentioning the one, Western uh, Mackenzie's Raiders. There are, in fact, several others. Have Gun Will Travel, which uh, is having a very successful run, but not uh, through the north, so it hasn't been seen here at all. Um, the Aquanauts, which in fact is a new, one of the new hour-length shows we have got. There's another uh, splendid uh, hour-length drama um, made by one of the top-ranking uh, American uh, television drama producers, Albert McCleary, Cameo. There's uh, also uh, another half-hour series, uh, Defenders, which has a high reputation. 
in the children's uh, band, we've got Buxton, which is uh, a western with a little boy and his horse. For children, we've got Rintin Tin, of course, well known again. It's yes. older uh, again, but... Uh, but again, so, oh, new for children yes. here. And immemorial, if you like, for all children anywhere. So brave is Corporal Rusty, though he is just a boy. How true is Private Rintintin, they are the Army's pride and joy. As the big day drew nearer, Maureen Potter and her cast of radio performers on the 10th of December 1961 predicted what Telefish Aaron would look like. Now, sit down, quiet, everybody. Then again. Turn off that Barton station and get radio aired and telefish. Do as I say, no more plunging necklines for you. Good, wholesome family fair from now on. Now, there, now, isn't that lovely? Now. Oh, boy, now. Finnegan, turn your head away. I never thought I'd see a woman in a bath on jellyfish air. <laughs> me, oh, me. Yes, hand. Shield that blackguard's eyes. The Smith's luxurious bath is guaranteed. We stand behind every bath we sell. Shady, <laughs> how embarrassing. Here is the weather. Another fine day is forecast. Ah, this fella is very funny. There will be frost tonight in unsheltered places. <laughs> Tonight we'll have to watch your unsheltered places. And here is the school around the corner. Oh, look at that now. It's being greeted by sustained applause. 2,500 people all clapping. At a pound a head. Oh, very sepulchral. Oh, I love this program. I really love this program. Do you remember it last week, Mick? What is your recitation called? Boy Bruce, farewell to his mother, sir. Very good. Well, now, how does it go? Boy, boy, ma. <laughs> And then suddenly it was opening day, the 31st of December, 1961. The transmitter was switched on in Kipur, at that stage covering only the east coast, if the wind was right. Can we adjust black level first? I'll centralise the black level control here on the desk. Meanwhile, down in Montrose, Ernest Byrne, yes, Gay's brother, the director of the first night, gave last-minute instructions. Uh, whereabouts will we have the captain's position for all the cameras? It's going out there, going out to camera one, all the captains. And, uh, Louis, will you be careful that each captain is pulled, you know, right. head on when okay. it's finished so we get on with it. Will you have to mix in with this, no? Uh, this won't mix in at all, no, because our anthem is sound on, and uh, we may have background discs for news later on, yeah. which the news producer will tell you about. Uh, Chris will be in to give you a rundown on the news, on the general disc that we have. Okay, is that, uh, anybody got any questions now about it? Well, as I said, remember everything that we've done since last July because uh, this is it. It's a big night, and I know everybody's going to be great. So we've got just under two hours. Let's go. As the clock ticked towards seven o'clock, a light snow began to fall. The St. Bridget's Cross symbol shone out. The picture quality was of a startling clarity never seen on BBC or UTV. And Ernest Byrne took up his position at the main presentation desk. 
One minute to air. Clock is up. Standby captions on one. Standby telecine, please. Telecine standing by. Thank you. 45 seconds. I'll do a countdown at 10. 30 seconds. 30 seconds to air. Focus in on camera one, please. 15 seconds to air. 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. We're on the air. Caption up. Roll the national anthem. Stand by sound on film. Take it, sound. One minute and 28 seconds to the president's speech. Looks very good. One minute to President's speech. Forty-five. We dissolve to camera one on the caption before speech. It'll be five seconds in absolute silence. 30. 30. Stand by for supering the flag on camera two on the last shot of the anthem. Four shots to go. The last shot is up. Super two on the flag. Ready caption on one. Fading out, fade in one. Stand by President's speech. I have great hopes in this new service. I am confident that those who are in charge will do everything in their power to make it useful for the nation. But I will bear in mind that we are an old nation and that we have our own distinctive characteristics and that it is desirable that these should be preserved. I am sure that they will do their part. And as I have said, it is for the public now to do theirs. I wish all those who are in charge Godspeed. And I wish all of you a very happy new year. And so it began Telefish Aaron. In about 40 minutes' time, Network 2 becomes Telefish Aaron for a day with an anniversary celebration, 30 years glowing. 11 hours of nostalgia starting at 1.30 when Kathleen Watkins returns to open the proceedings just as she did 
30 years ago. Here's Mila Foyter, a special program for opening night, which I'm sure you're going to enjoy.